John's teaching will be today. John will be teaching out of verses 15 through 21, 1 John chapter 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. We are. I had forgotten that it was just very recently that I cut my hair, so I saw someone for the first time who saw me with short hair. And I didn't realize why the strange look. Now I know. I no longer wear sandals to preach. I used to take my shoes off up here and, and preach barefootedly. Uh, what a blessing to see the, uh, the baby dedications. Um, if we could, maybe if Miles could be a little less screamy next time, that would be fantastic. Um, or if John could pray longer while, while the baby's upset, perhaps that would be good as well. Uh, it is a blast to see the little ones um, in the church. I love it. It's, I, I don't know who said it, but they said if you take a knee and you look around the room, you're now looking in the eyes of, of the next generation of your church. And so we do appreciate um, the children never bothered by 6.9 miles. Um, I'll never forget his birth weight because of that, right? It sounds like the, you see a sticker on the back of a car or something, 6.9 miles. Watch, they're going to tell me I got it wrong. Am I right? 6.9? I'm totally incorrect. What is it? What? No, 6.9. <laughs> you know, they say when men get the flu, it's, it's equivalent to, uh, to labor because... I was trying to get myself in trouble today. John's gospel is, or excuse me, John's gospel, John's letter, he's talking about a kind of a really impassioned love among the brethren. What a blessing to know that what we have inside the church, what we have as a family, what we have as a family of believers is, is a special kind of love that John has spent the greater part of this talking about. He's really not getting away from this subject. He keeps kind of working and working and working his way to talk about this really particular kind of love. And it's interesting because maybe it isn't one of the hobby horses we tend to hear talked about in the church is, is a particular kind of love among the, among the brethren, among the family of God. You know, we talked about um, if there was someone above us, uh, among us who had some sort of need that we could certainly fulfill, we would never look away from them and say, well, I hope that works out, right? Be warm and be fed. Hopefully you can find some, a meal or a place to live. We care more than that. And that's great because perhaps if you've paid attention, if you've lived more than, than a few days, you've realized that this life can really grind you down. It's almost as though the world desires to wear you out. And maybe you're, maybe you're a believer this morning. Maybe you're not a believer this morning. The Christian life doesn't say life's going to be great. It just says you're victorious in spite of the many difficulties that this life will bring. Um, the, the great news of the gospel is not that you will have a wonderful life under the sun. I hope that that happens. I hope that happens for myself. If you know me, you know I like to avoid discomfort and pain. When I die, I would vastly prefer that it be in the middle of my sleep, completely unaware of what happened. And this life can wear us down and grind us out. In fact, the scriptures even say that we're, as believers, sometimes pressed on all sides, but never crushed. Sometimes I feel that. 
Sometimes I feel great. And the wonderful news is God abounds in both of those situations. Paul from prison would celebrate that he'd learned to abound in little and much. There is a certain freedom in Christ. And there's a certain freedom in knowing God. And there is a certain freedom in Christian obedience. And that can sound strange. Christian obedience. That means I wake up in the morning and if I want to apply abiding in my life, maybe that means I wake up in the morning and I pray. Maybe that means I wake up in the morning and I read my Bible. But what about when I wake up in the morning and I just don't feel that? You ever been there? You just don't feel it. It takes discipline to pray. It takes discipline to read. And that doesn't feel right. That's not what you want. You want to wake up and your feet hit the ground and you're like, I'm going to spend time with Jesus. Let me get my coffee cup. and It'll be floral and it'll have a, a, a verse from Scripture on it. Let me put my Bible down. And then let me pull out my camera and open up Instagram and take the camera from a 90 degree angle and tilt it slightly and, and maybe hashtag it, time with Jesus. But sometimes I don't wake up feeling that way. Sometimes I wake up and I pray in spite of not feeling like it. Or I read my Bible in spite of not feeling like it. And that's okay. Imagine how easy it would be to collapse us in this life if, if God demanded our perfect obedience from within ourselves. We just had to be perfectly obedient. I, I don't even know if I'd make it one day. Have you ever fasted before? There's nothing quite like fasting to make you realize who you are. You, you let this unit not receive sustenance for a few hours, it gets complainy. And I only say that because Brianna's not in here. She would describe it differently. God is so great to us. He gives us life and breath. That I woke up this morning, and I woke up this morning. All night, my conscious mind was off, making up weird dreams about jumping out of windows to catch horses that are jumping out of windows, and I just kind of fly off, right? That's what my mind is doing. Meanwhile, my heart still beats, and my lungs breathe in air. Except for those times when I wake up gasping because I'm choking on my own tongue. So John offers up this encouragement to us, a people who can't even keep our bodies animated overnight. He offers up some encouragement to us to complete the love of God, even to perfect the love of God. And I don't know about you, when I read that I'm going to perfect the love of God, I think, well, here comes a mess. I, I can hardly perfect laundry, but I'm going to perfect the love of God. And so we should desire to respond to that, though. The Scriptures reveal that that's what we're called to. The Scriptures reveal that that's what we need to be obedient to, is perfecting the love of God. We're commanded, we read in verse 21, commanded to love. And so we should desire to respond to that command. We should desire to see the fruit of the Christian life flowing out from us. And we should look for incremental improvements in our lives as Christians. And incremental improvements means failures along the way. You don't improve incrementally unless you're stumbling up somewhere. And again, that's okay. Right? Our, our sanctification or the process by which we come more and more and more in the image of Christ is described as progressive. It's time spent in prayer, time spent in reading the Word, time spent in being instructed by the Spirit of God. In 1 John, where we're studying, chapter 1 and verse 8, we read, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We, believers, deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin. And the truth as believers, is not in us. And so to chapter 4, starting in verse 15, 
as John read, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Abiding can sound a bit like something that you can muster up the strength to do. Maybe you could say that you had abided today. I put my, I leaned in, gave it my best, and I abided today. But the question becomes, what happens in times of calamity? And what happens in times of trial? What happens when you get that sinking feeling in your stomach because it's two in the morning and your phone's ringing? You know that's not a good call. Nobody calls to chat at two if they do get new friends. When the wheels fall off, we can actually tend towards even greater dependence on God. And maybe that's scary. How do we abide when things are rough? And I don't think we tend to think about that as believers, right? We tend to think that life gets easy as, as believers. But imagine how crushing that could be if any calamity befell you and you thought the Christian life means everything has to be easy and perfect, then you could be deceived to believe that you're not found in Christ in those times. You see the Job's friends in the book of Job, he was the most upright man in the land of us. And everything was fine. He'd pray for his children after their own day and in case they might have sinned against God, and then messengers came and brought him all of this horrific news. And his friends came along, Eliphaz and Jophaz, maybe you have friends like this, and they said, Job, you must have some sin in your life. And Job said, I, I, don't. I don't. I don't have unconfessed sin in my life. They said, no, 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 you do. You must have some deep hidden sin. This is why God is treating you like this. But they got it wrong. It wasn't about that. And so how do we abide when things are rough? In John chapter 4 and 15, verse 15, we see this reality about life as a believer. We were, we were talking this morning about Jesus giving instruction of the helper coming, the Holy Spirit coming. He said, it's better that the Spirit goes. It's better that I leave you and that the Spirit comes and he's your helper the spirit that reminds you of sin and righteousness and judgment, that's better than you have me locally here physically among you. It's better that you have the spirit of God with you. John 4 and 15 reveals that whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's what it means to be a believer. You, the, the Spirit of God is in you. You are abiding in God. And we would expect, certainly, that that would affect some change in our daily lives. That we wouldn't walk about our daily lives with the, the very Spirit of God in us. Us abiding in God and react to the, this in the exact same ways to the world around us that we would have in our own sin and our own fallenness. Scriptures reveal that none seeks after God. No, not one. Meaning, if you're like me, and you work near a major college in Massachusetts as a janitor, and in the evenings you would read books from the library and work on the chalkboard and work on big math problems, and you started to plot out how many people were seeking after God, and at the end of the big math problem you got to the end and the answer is no one. None seeks after God. No, not one. And so then, when you find yourself genuinely interested in the gospel's message, when, when you hear that um, as, a, as every person is on earth, you're born and you have an indwelling sin in you. It's like the shingles virus, right? If you've got one of those weird scars and you're a kid, you had chicken pox, you, you, the shingles virus is already in you. It's like our, our sin nature, it's just in us, it's part of us. That's why John 3.19 says that we desire the darkness more than the light. In fact, it, it describes us as loving the darkness. In the ways that it talks about the very love of God, the only other time that form of love is applied to something other than God, it's applied to humans in John 3, 19, where it says we loved the darkness more than the light. And so then when God does 
a work in us when we are compelled by His Spirit to respond to the Gospel, which simply says we are fallen short of God's glory. Not meaning we didn't, we didn't live up to some checklist of the kinds of things that God wouldn't do, and then one day you, you failed. Meaning all of your faculties are a part of this world which has fallen away from Him. And when the Scriptures reveal that God is love, it's not that God lives up to love. It's not that God loves so well that He has also met the test. It's that His character is what love is. And so when you want to know something is loving, the, the litmus test that you hold that thing up to is God Himself. And so if that God dwells in me and I in Him, if I used to be someone who loved the darkness more than the light, and then I'm compelled by the Spirit of God to uh, repent, meaning turning from trusting in myself and turning to trusting God, I'll be different now. I see things differently. I understand things differently. The cross itself, the message of the cross before I was a believer was foolishness. And so if you've ever known someone who became a, a, a recent convert, a new believer, so frequently there's just this ferocious hunger for the Word and to tell people about Christ. It's because everything is different now. You understand things differently. The, the very Spirit of God is alive in you and you want everyone to know about it. And that's what John reveals in chapter 4 and verse 15. When we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in us and we abide in Him So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is the, the concept that John just keeps pulling us into, constantly reminding us that we have God in us, that those who know and believe, that's how verse 16 starts off. So we have come to know and to believe. Those are two different things, knowing and believing. I have this knowledge, and now because of that knowledge, I continually believe that the love that God has for us, when we see ourselves and we realize that, again, sin is, is not failing to live up to some checklist of activities. Sin is not uh, lacking making sandwiches for people. Sin is not that I didn't give money to the church. It is our lack of alignment to God's own character. And so John is pulling us into this wonderful picture of God's characteristic of God's nature, which is love. If you would consider a few passages, I'm going to list them off. You don't have to turn there. I'll read them, and, and they're on the screen uh, behind me. There'll be three of them. John chapter 17 and verse 26. John chapter 14 and verse 9. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. John chapter 17 in verse 26. These are tiny letters. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the man Jesus through whom we know the Father. John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus said to him, I've been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And this is the Jesus who we come to know. And finally, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 
through 20. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the Christ through whom we come to know the Father. The firstborn of all creation. To pick up from where we were this morning in in adult Sunday school, this does not mean that he was a created thing. This is talking about his preeminence. He was the most important of all things that were created. He is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He stepped into human form. He stepped into flesh so that he could live in always like us, yet without sin. Because without the God-man doing that, there could be no payment, no final payment for sin. John 1, 16 through 18. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, are how we come to knowledge, is how we come to know God, is how we're compelled to be, to be justified. That's, that's the thing about our salvation. There is not a single person on this earth outside of the God-man Christ who is without sin. And so, how are we, how are we brought near to God? That's what Jesus is describing. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He makes us justified or just as if I'd never sinned. It's a legal transaction. We are made legally as though we are not sinners. And there is no person who is not in need of that. I remember a young man at a church confessing to me that he was struggling to show up at church. And I said, I get it. It smells like old tea in the building. It's weird, musty. He said, no, that's not it. He said, it's everybody in the church just has it figured out. You know, I come in and they all know how to turn in their Bibles. You know, they know where the books are. They know the answers to the questions. They smile and they're happy. I'm like, dude, listen, I know them. They were all fighting in the car before they got here. The last thing that happened was they slammed the door in anger to let everyone know how frustrated they are. And then they got to the front door. They all had scowls, you know. Then they got to the front door and a greeter came out. And he said, good morning. He said, hey, brother, how's it going? They were just yelling in the car. People aren't in the church because they have it worked out. Let's think about the prerequisite is that you are dead in your sin and trespass and the God-man had to come to live to redeem you. That's what it means to be a Christian. There is no such thing as as looking up our nose at anyone. In fact, it was described as being a believer as like being a beggar who knows where all the bread is, but it never runs out, so you just get to tell everyone. That's the Christian life. So appreciative, so exciting, so excited at the great work that was done for us. We were unredeemable. But God redeemed us. What a great God. I mean, it's it's so much more exciting than all the ridiculousness that we're surrounded by. Steelers football, for example. Some of us are more excited about Steelers football than we are Christ Jesus. 
Ricky Perley, for example. He loves Jesus more than football. He just picked a bad team. That's all. This is the great news of the gospel. The great news of the gospel is not that we now walk around sinless and judge people around us. My gracious, how much of the scriptures are written to talk to you about applying discipline to your life? The book of James talks about the power of the tongue. It's like a rudder of a ship. It can destroy things. And I think in a modern day, it would probably talk about the power of the thumb. So many people are frustrated by things that people said. And I said, really, what did they say? Well, they sent me a text. Oh, I see. So when you're talking in the tone that you've allotted to them, it was words on a screen, and you're assuming how they said them. The power of the thumb is like a rudder on a ship. 1 John 4.17, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. You, you could get stuck on verse 17 for a very long time. I know that because I got stuck on verse 17 for a very long time. By this, my ears perk up. Great, wonderful. I'm about to see, I'm about to hear something. By this, okay, what is this going to be? By this, love is perfected. Okay, that's interesting. Perfected love, I, you know, I want to hear more. It's perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. You think about what confidence for the day of judgment is? The day of judgment is the day when, the, when it's almost like when the lights flick on. And all of our works of this life are judged. Can you imagine being confident for that? Most certainly, if you're in Christ, having perfect confidence. If I'm in Christ, I have perfect confidence in the final days. Because God sees me in Christ. And I abide in Him and He abides in me. I am excited for that day. Not because I'm going to come across stainless, not because my life was perfect, but because God will see Christ, not me. I would be less confident if I had to stand on my own merit. If I had to stand before God and answer how I love perfectly. I can't even answer how I drive down the street perfectly. Frankly, I'm frustrated most of the time I'm in traffic. I mean, if you cut me off, forget about it. Actually, I used to live in Naples, Italy. And uh, it's really great. They call it like bumper cars there. And people just scream at each other in traffic. And as an American, it's the weirdest thing because you look over and someone's screaming at you and they're doing all their stuff with their hands, right? And then you get out of the car and as an American, you're like, all right, this is going down, right? And you get out and they'll say, oh, hey. I mean, they say it in, in you know, Italian, but they're fine. You just scream like that. It's amazing. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. How is Jesus going to accomplish his work? He's going to do the work that was prophesied for him, that was foretold by God that he would do. It's the same word that is used of perfecting love. Is used of Jesus here for accomplishing the will of God. It doesn't mean that you take something that's imperfect. You take something that needs to be a little bit better, and through your effort, you improve upon it. It's not as though we take the love of God that was in us, and, and we, we amplify it, and we make it better because we're just such wonderful creatures. We accomplish the reason that it went forward. We do the works that were prepared before us. We perfect it. We bring it to its accomplishment as we share the love among the brethren, as we live differently in a world around us, as people look on our, our, our church, our group of people, and say they care about each other so much. They, they gather together each week and they, they sing songs to God. What is that? I mean, it's weird, right? That is perfecting the love of God. We brought nothing to the table. We just shared what was given to us. And that perfects the love of God. It brings it to its full fruition. 
It accomplishes that which it was sent out for. It is complete. It is brought to an end. By this, those that were talked about in verse 15, those of us who who confess Christ as the Messiah, who confess Christ as Savior and Lord, those who have seen their sin laid bare before a holy and righteous God and said, I'm in trouble. And simply looked on Christ and repented. I love the concept of repentance, right? Because I used to, or not I, someone someone who made a mistake, but used to say that it's it's like doing a 360. And and a buddy of mine, uh, Drew, pointed out that, hey, hey guy, 360 means you're still going in the same direction. I mean, 180. That describes repentance. When I face Christ and I realize I've been running in my own way, I've been going after my own purposes, I've been going after my own desires, and I now completely change direction, Jesus becomes Lord. That's why we pray before we do things. We want to be in the very will of God. We want to make sure every decision is given over to God in Christ. And we also pray because we believe God is sovereign. We, we pray for the people that we love and we care so much about that don't know God in Christ because we believe that God can save them. Because we believe that the, the Spirit of God will impact their will, that the, the Spirit of God will, will effectually call them, will woo them. That if we display, that we share plainly what the Gospel is, starting from the point of, being fallen short of God's glory, starting from the place of everyone has fallen in sin, and that makes us separated from God. That's the bad news, but it's backed up by glorious news. That's why we're so jealous for the gospel. You you hear people say all the time, "That's that's a gospel issue. That sounds cool, but what does that mean? Everything's not a gospel issue. Some things are just things. Some things are part of living in a broken, fallen, sin-sick world that groans. In a world that God is going to destroy. Hidden away in verse 17 is a nugget from John. That's so subtly mentioned in this swirl of encouragement to love and, and to be indwelled by God. And that is this, this godly trait of love, seeing it in ourselves, seeing it flow through us, encourages us, gives us confidence for the day of judgment. We can be confident for the day of judgment by seeing the very love of God flow through us. In 1 John 4.12, John said, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Perfected it is again. Just like in verse 17, perfected in us. The very presence of God in us gives us a kind of confidence in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. It makes us know by faith the truth of God and His Word, just like John encouraged us in verse 10, that Jesus is the propitiation, Jesus is the payment, Jesus is the appeasement of God's wrath on our behalf. What great news! I mean, what better news could there be that Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin? Our sin is dealt with. There's no more account to be made. And then God is with those of us who know and have faith. And so we approach judgment without fear. A couple of passages from our book. I'll name four and read them, but I'll name them first. 1 John 1.9 1 John 2.1 1 John 2.2 and 1 John 4.10, starting verse 1.9, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
confessing our sin before Him, repenting, turning, trusting in Christ. He is faithful, meaning He'll see it through to the end. And if you question God's faithfulness, read the entire Old Testament. You see, he, he redeems Egypt. This is my, my favorite story for God's faithfulness because you know, perhaps you question it. Perhaps you, you have to understand that God is not a man that he cannot lie. He's not like us. He's faithful. If he says, I'm going to redeem you from this national army, grab the babies and food, but don't let it cook all the way, and just start following this smoke, and then at night start following this fire, and then you walk up to the edge of the water with an entire national army behind you, you can have firm confidence that God will see you through this impossible situation. Or, and this is the best, if anybody can finish this, it's to be absent from the body is to be present with God. It's kind of a win-win proposition, right? To be absent from the body, like, like meaning in the, in the very moments that the lights go out, you're now present with God. It's almost like if God is for us, who can be against us? One John four twelve said very similarly. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. What great news for for believers, those of us who are in the church, the very love of God being perfected in us, the very love of God finding its end in us. And we get to share in that life together. It's not that we of the church have it all figured out. It's not that we know where the books are. I know most of you have tabs in your Bible, and that's why you can find the books. Roy has tabs. He can't find the books otherwise. I want to, we have to be so cautious with people, the, the kind of the air that we put out when, when people come into the church, right? We want to be so cautious that we don't have some kind of an environment where you, you have to know all of your doctrine and theology to be able to survive here. What a horrible place that would be. We want to be able to have people in process. We want to have some who are more mature. We want to have some who are less mature and all who are just excited to be able to be known by God. That's who we want to be. 1 John 2.1 My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why we approach God without fear. 1 John 2.2 He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This is why we approach the final judgment without fear. It's Christ who is our payment. It's Christ who is our justifier. It's God who is just to save us. What do we have to fear? 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is why John works up to this nugget of assurance in verse 17. It's why we have confidence in the final day. And he clarifies in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We weren't in a neutral place with God when he first loved us. We weren't passingly disinterested in God. In our natural state, in our flesh, we hate God. I've said this before. You know, if, if, if you've ever been to church as an unbeliever, maybe you're in church right now as an unbeliever. I remember being at church as an unbeliever. And just during the time of singing, that was the most frustrating thing. Just listening to these songs and these words that make no sense. So people they don't mean what they're saying. They're just repeating the words because they're written on a screen. Romans 1, 28 through 30. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. If you're a parent, that last one is your favorite one. That's your go-to. If you read that list, and you just think about just turning on the television, whether it's news, whether it's any television show, or I don't even know if reality shows still exist, but one of those, think of that list. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It's a great description of just people. In John chapter 15 and verse 18, the church, believers, we are encouraged. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I feel like some of us, maybe that has been cut out of our Bible because we're so surprised when the world hates what Christians believe. Ah, how could they not agree with me? How could they not clearly see what the Bible says? I thought we were a Christian nation, right? We go to a church with an, an eagle head on the wall and a big American flag. Titus 3.3 For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the picture of what it means to be a person. That's what makes Ephesians, the revelation in Ephesians, so incredible. If you would turn there, Ephesians chapter 2, um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. This is such a great picture. I mean, if you're a, a writer in your Bible person, this should be circled. If it isn't, underlined, jotted down, written on the dust cover. This could be a scripture memory verse. This is... This is some of the most encouraging stuff to have buried deep within yourself. This is when the, when the scriptures talk about um, hiding the word inside your heart that you might not sin against him. This is one of those passages that I imagine is, is squarely in view. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But God. Everything that we just said about being a person, what we saw in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, and John 15, 18, what we read from Titus 3, 3, all of those kinds of concepts are packed right before this. The position of people is so desperate. We're so far from God. We love anything from Him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. Where does this picture of God's love given to you while you hated Him Echoed in Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. Where does that radiate 
from your life today? Meaning, how are you impacted by that? To know that God found you in a position of actively hating him and he, he impacted you. He, he violated your own will to work against him. He, he came and he found you where you were while you were dead in your sin and trespass. Have you ever seen a dead person before? If you were to kind of like sneak off to the side, I used to do a Bible study with a guy named Chris who was a um, uh, mortuary science guy. He worked at Hetrick, and I would go do a Bible study with him. And I, honestly, I always thought he was going to kill me um, because I would do the. We would, I would go to his house. I'd knock on the door, and when we come in, there's all these stainless steel tables with drains in them. And like one time, I really stupidly, I was like, "Hey, what's that right there?" And it was a pump. He's like, "Oh, that's when I do embalming." And it was in that moment I knew that he was going to kill me. It's like he could just embalm me, you know, kind of pump me up, throw me in the bottom of a, of a faux box. But don't be worried, it didn't happen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If I was to have come over to Chris's place and seen a body on the table and said, hey, I'll, I'll be up in a minute and kind of like snuck over, you know, like you do with an animal, you kind of poke it in the eye first, make sure it doesn't move, it's not going to startle you. And I was to pour out some high-quality medicine. I'm talking CVS brand Tussin into a spoon. And I walk over and I put it right to the lip, or lips, kind of depending how these things went down, of that person. Are they going to sit up and drink that medicine? No, I can't bring anything life-saving close enough to them that they're going to do something. This is where God found us dead in our sin and trespass. He reanimated us to life and Him to be able to respond to His grace and love. What, this is why the gospel is so terrific. It's not kind of good news. It's the absolute best news that you could ever imagine. It doesn't look to find you close to the cross of Christ. It finds you wherever in the world you are. And it allows you by grace to see that you're falling short of God's glory and then provides the perfect remedy in Christ. He is both just and justifier. He makes you just as if you'd never sinned legally. And so on the day of judgment, we know that we're found in Christ. What great news. There is nothing, nothing on this earth that's better. Not even Perlick's horrible football team is any more exciting than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So where does that radiate out from us? If this is the absolute best news that could ever have been, if I was fallen short of God's glory, if I was deserving of wrath, that should at least leak out of me somewhere, right? If the very love of God is in me, if I'm in God and, and I'm if God is found in me and I'm found in God and Christ, that should at least come out somewhere. Verse 21 helps us get there. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what does that mean? When I'm not feeling it in that particular moment, John 1, 421 comes along and says, I must. I must. If the, if, if the God is in me and I'm in God and I'm found in Christ, I must love. That's the commandment. And so if I'm not feeling like being loving, remember that verse 17 encourages us that perfect love, love perfected in us, meaning that it finds its in, it's satisfied, we exercise that gift of love, it's perfected in us. And so we should then desire to be actively about Christian love. Putting aside sometimes, oftentimes for some of us, putting aside our pride. Finding opportunity. And here's a wonderful exercise. And if you're married, ask your spouse. They will help. Perhaps if you think back to when's the last time that you were wrong and you said, hey, I apologize. I was wrong in that moment. If you can't think of one, that might be a problem. That may mean you are an obtuse person. And imagine being around this person who's never wrong. If you're single, ask John Nicholas. He'll tell you how obtuse you are and 
how wrong you've been. And pray for Tammy. What a great opportunity that we have as believers to sometimes come alongside one another and say, hey, I just want you to know I apologize. I was bristly towards you the other morning at 8.30 at the church. Or I didn't act in the right way. I want to be more honoring. I want to be more honoring. I want, to, I want people to know by the way that I treat others that I love Christ. So I apologize to the way that I was. I apologize for what I said. What a freeing thing. Death has no sting over us. We are victors in Christ. And so among the body, among the brethren, in particular, there should be a certain kind of love, and that flows from God, and we get to share it. That's, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, imagine being in an environment where people try to outdo one another in showing honor. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you so much for your son that we needed such a tangible, visible picture of our sin, that you gave us bulls and goats and sacrificial systems that we could see that without blood there was no remission of sin. And that, God, that you continually across all time let us know that a Savior was coming. And God, thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to live in all ways like us, but without sin, and that he then becomes our mediator to you. God, thank you that we have a way to be made right, to be made whole, to be redeemed to you. And God, I pray that we would be impacted by that, by even this morning, if we're believers, being reminded, God, that you're in us and we're in you and this, your spirit lives in us. God, that's encouraging. I pray that we, we, we come to understand that more. God, for, for, for those in the room who might not be a believer this morning, I pray that they not see a group of haughty people, prideful people, lying people, but God, they see a room of, of people who were, who were desperate before you and who found their salvation in your son, Jesus. Put aside all blockers and noise from the world that say it makes no sense, God, that you exist because God, it only makes sense that you exist. Of nothing comes nothing. And you created all that we see. And so God, we're thankful for that. And so if there would be anyone who does not know you and your son savingly this morning, I pray that today they would respond to your gospel. God, that they would look on your son Christ in spite of any and all distractions in life. Look on your son Christ who is beautiful and spotless and radiates your love perfectly. And be redeemed to you. God, we pray these things in Jesus' precious, holy name. Amen. You would please stand and join us as we worship.